Welcome to Out of the Ordinary, the show that helps you grow a daily life that matters. I'm Christy Purifoy. And I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And if it's getting to be chilly, snuggle up under a warm blanket with a good book or TV show weather where you are, then this episode is going to be just perfect for you. That's right. This is cozy season here at the podcast, and I am running, not walking, to check out your recommendations, Lisa Joe. So get comfy, friends. Here we go. Christy, when I woke up this morning, my first instinct was, can I go back to bed? Oh, <laughs> can I read a book all day? Could I watch a yeah. show all day? And the reason is, I think you and I both had similar weekends of surviving homecoming. <laughs> yes, we did. We did. Yeah, it was a busy weekend here at Maplehurst. And I think even busier at Shea Baker. Am I right? I hey, know, but I feel like like you busy in a good way, right? Like we had kids and getting dressed up and homecoming dance and out-of-town guests staying at our house. I will say my little blue bookshelf shed for the first time served as the guest house because Peter and I slept here since our in-laws were in our bedroom for the weekend. And it did pretty good. I learned a lot about what I would want to do differently if I was having, you know, guests who weren't family stay in the shed. (laughs) But I was glad to return to my own bed last night. And I do. I mean, I woke up and I thought, ha, could I just check out of the day? Like, could I just snuggle in with a book. I feel like this is the weather for it. It's cozy. I have the flannel covers on my duvet. And I just was very tempted to just play hooky today. I'm not, I'm obviously not since you and I are here recording together, but I was in <laughs> right. fact tempted. Yeah. And if any listeners are keeping track, I know we have shared on the podcast before that our usual schedule is to record on a Friday for that Wednesday's episode. Well, the fact that you and I are recording on Monday just tells you everything you need to know about the past (laughs) few days and how busy we've been. (laughs) So it is extra Monday-ish around here. But when things are extra Monday, I think you and I, Lisa Joe, we know how to lean into those low bar, low expectations, taking it easy. You and I, and we encourage our listeners, are not known for being hard on ourselves, right? But we like to care for ourselves and show ourselves a bit of compassion. And so that means I think our listeners are in for a treat because you and I were feeling a little tired and a little gloomy. We sat down and said, what is something fun we could talk about? And as our listeners will also know, the most fun thing for you and I to talk about are good books and good movies and good stories in all forms. So that is what we're going to talk about today. So if you're having a Monday-ish day, even if it's a Wednesday when you're listening to this or a Friday or a Thursday, and you want to play hooky from your life, guess what? We are here to enable that today because we are going (laughs) to share some favorite book series you can get lost in and some favorite TV shows. But there's a bit of a Freaky Friday moment because typically Mm -hmm. Christy would be the one sharing books. I would be sharing TV shows and we're that's a reversal today. I've got three series of books to introduce you to and Christy has three TV shows. Yeah, I don't even know how that happened, Lisa Joe, but I like it. I've been watching TV lately, and I'm excited to tell you about it. <laughs> so who goes first? How do we start this? I, I don't mind, whichever. 
All right, go for it. Because I have no idea, listeners. I have no idea um, what Lisa Joe is about to recommend. So here we go. Well, I'll tell you, it began for me in the summer when I started this new series. And I think I actually, when I had finished the first one or two books, messaged you and said, you must get these immediately. Like these are phenomenal. I assume you have not read them yet because I've not heard from you. And if you had read them, I would have heard from you because they're so incredible. So this is a series. There are four books in the series. It is by Brittany Cavallero. And the first in the series is called A Study in Charlotte. And I'm just going to test you, Christy. Can you do a word association? Which famous novel does that make you think of? Um, well, I thought of Charlotte Bronte, but there's a study in Scarlet. There you go. Well done. Ding, ding, ding. Christy ah. wins. A study in Scar- Scarlet is, of course, a Sherlock Holmes novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And this is a play on that called A Study in Charlotte. The premise is sheer genius. It's one of those books when I started reading, I immediately felt jealous. I'm like, how did she come up with this idea? (laughs) Oh, it's so brilliant. So the premise of the series is three generations descended from Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are their great, great, great grandson and great, great, great granddaughter who are teenagers at a boarding school in Connecticut. And they meet each other for the first time. They are descended directly from these heroes that um, the book presumes were real, Watson and Holmes. What's fun in this scenario is that Holmes is a young teenage girl called Charlotte, Charlotte Holmes, and uh, descended from the reputable and amazing Dr. Watson is his great, great, great grandson, Jamie Watson, who is a young teenage boy. And the two of them are students at a boarding school in Connecticut, and their meeting and subsequent adventures are just fantastic. Like, guzzled them down is how I would describe these books. I had ordered the first three as actual books, and then I the fourth one t- was too slow in coming. And so I like I got the Kindle version while I was on vacation because I couldn't wait to get home and get the hard copy because they're so, so outstanding. Do you remember me mentioning these to you, Christy? Oh, so now you're putting me on the spot, Lisa Joe. <laughs> you don't even know I what wasn't going to admit this. <laughs> okay, so I, I will tell you, I just maybe need to give them another chance. <gasps> you tried it, but didn't I, like it? Well, okay, so... So he full story, I got the first one, but I also got another mystery novel that I was super excited to read. And so I tried a study in Charlotte and I'll just be honest, I'm not used to reading YA. I'm not used to like teen romance. And so it's just not the kind of thing that grabs me right away. But hearing you describe it now, I do love Sherlock Holmes. I love mysteries. I love the kind of meta of taking literary figures, literary characters, and make and making them like as if they're real people with descendants and putting descendants of characters in a new story. That is a really cool idea. So I think maybe I just need to go back and try again. Well, I'm actually <laughs> glad you said that because I know there's probably some listener who's like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I could go for that. Teenage romance, YA, not here for it. So let me set the scene a little better for you. Maybe I didn't do a good enough job when I was explaining it to Chrissy. Here's why it is a step 
above your typical YA or teen romance. So what I'm sharing with you are not spoilers. You get this literally like in the first chapter when you're reading the first book. Clearly, Charlotte, who is descended from Holmes, is been formed by these characters she's descended from. And what you realize as you get to know her is she has not been formed in healthy ways. She's coming from a pretty intense family that has crossed over not just from intense, but to, to almost abusive in how they are training her to live up to her grand ancestor. She's also a girl that you find out has suffered a sexual assault. You find out in the very opening chapter that colors the relationship she and Jamie try to have. So it is not a typical teen romance at all. It isn't butterflies and rainbows. They have deep feelings for one another, but those are much more couched in friendship. And Jamie trying to navigate from a boy's perspective, how do you help a girl who suffered from a traumatic assault? And Charlotte, who has her whole life been able to think herself out of situations, does not know what to do with this assault that happened to her, that she was in a position where she couldn't outthink what happened. And then you have those pressure cookers, and then both of them have their family dynamics. So Charlotte is a character who, over the course of four novels, is dealing with PTSD from her assault. And Jamie, as a male character, is trying to figure out how to come alongside a woman who has experienced trauma. So it's it's a very powerful examination of these two characters, their shared history, their, in some cases, destructive families that they're coming out of, and then the microcosm they're operating in this boarding school that they both attend. And on top of that, there's an outstanding mystery. So d- does that make it sound a little more like worth giving a second chance? It does. It does. Yes. And I think actually when I was starting the first one, I'm not even sure I realized it was a series. And I am definitely willing to give things like a slower build or a longer time to grab me if I know that it's a series. Because I love this, especially like I don't read series generally, but I love mystery series Mm -hmm. because you get the discrete mysteries in each novel, but you also get characters, your detectives or whoever, who are developing over the course of the series, which I just really love that. I love that slow character development over a series plus more of a page turning like mystery within the book itself. So I do think I will like these. I just need to give it time. And so, yes, yes, I am convinced. I will try again. (laughs) And what's beautiful about it, too, is she unpacks. So, the Moriarty family is obviously involved in the novels, too. Um, There is one of the Moriarty's who's trying to extend an olive branch to the Holmes family. Can you trust him? Can you not? There are all these parents that have all of their dysfunctions that have never been addressed. There are these kids who don't understand the history that they're actually operating within contextually. There's a lot of political intrigue between these powerful English families that have existed for centuries, you know, either dueling or making peace. So there's like Romeo and Juliet elements to it. Um, and it's just so tender. I think I was so... um just made such an impression on me, these teenagers who are trying to navigate really what you've inherited from your family. And when we have dysfunction within family, we don't often realize how it's impacting us going forward. And 
the writer is so tender with these characters and the characters are very hard on one another and then have to learn. Like there's such damage that they inflict on one another. And so there's also a real beautiful story about what does forgiveness look like? What does healing look like? All of these very adult themes that I think she's using these teenage characters to to teach us against beautiful backdrops like Prague and London and Connecticut. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's so, Charlotte <laughs> Holmes is insane. She's so crazy how hyper-focused and you don't realize it until you've spent a lot of time with her, how formed she's been by her own dysfunctional family and Jamie to a degree too. And really they're two broken characters looking for healing against the backdrop of like an international murder mystery that's happening at the same time. It's so good. What's really interesting about Brittany Cavallero, who writes these novels, I was so delighted to find out about her. So she actually has her PhD in creative arts, or she's or she's got her Doctor of Philosophy and English Literature with creative dissertation. And she is a teacher at, wait for it, a boarding school in Michigan, the Interlochen Center for the Arts, where she's the instructor of creative writing. So what I love about her, she's a practitioner of writing, but she's also in a boarding school, like living in the microcosm that is the backdrop for these novels that she's writing. So clearly, like when I was reading them, that's why I went and looked her up because I was like, who even goes to boarding school anymore or knows what that's like? Or it was so interesting to discover how she teaches creative writing still to teenagers and she loves what she does at the school and I'm telling you I just fell in love with Charlotte and Jamie it's so beautiful and there's 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 not a neat bow like I like that too like this isn't a happily ever after it's not a tragically ever after either but it has some very tragic moments so I think it gives you everything it's a little a little bitter to cut the sweet, um, but it's also a real life reflection of the trauma of being a teenager, I think, is difficult that she is able to put us in that place. And I think as a 48-year-old mom who's overcome a lot of her own trauma, it was a great lens for unpacking a lot of what it means to be a human in a world that is difficult and is constantly asking us to grow, uh, even when we're in our 40s. Mm, fantastic. That is a ringing endorsement. I've been reading a lot of murder mysteries and mysteries, too. But I will just share those recommendations for another episode of the podcast. Yeah, Instead, do it. I'm going to dive in to recommend some things I've been watching on TV crazy. I know. Who am I? <laughs> um, okay. This first one has a literary connection, though, because um, my husband and my teenage boys and I have been watching the new, brand new um, Tolkien-inspired, Middle-earth-inspired series on Prime called Rings of Power. So, if you know Lord of the Rings or Hobbit, it is that world. So, first of all, we love it. Okay. We've already started. I'm so we relieved to hear that. I know. We are going to watch it. And I'm I'm so curious what your reaction is because we haven't watched any yet. And I wasn't sure what people, what you would think of it. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's not perfect. What is? But sure. it's great. We really enjoyed it. Um, I'm so glad we watched it. So I will say I went into it with very 
low expectations and like worried, like, mm. I don't know, but yeah, it won me over. So back background is this. Um, if you know the works of Tolkien, you know, he wrote The Hobbit, he wrote Lord of the Rings, and I am forever and always devoted to the books, Absolutely. no matter what books we're talking about. Co-sign. So they are, yeah, so they are well worth reading. And um, I know I myself have read Lord of the Rings maybe just twice, maybe three times. It's a good one just to go back into. And I think I might be reading The Hobbit soon with Elsa. So anyway, books books almost always win. But I say almost always because those books are big and they're dense. So I am okay. And and they're so visual that I, I, I think it's great that artists have been inspired by them. And now filmmakers have been inspired to translate them into, you know, visual forms. I think that's okay. And I th- I think it's good because Tolkien's values, you know, he was um he was a Christian and his sort of Christian lens is absolutely a part of the fantasy worlds that he creates. And so, you know, Christians in particular really love Tolkien and his works. And so while I recommend the books, I understand that, you know, if you take a look at The Lord of the Rings, it can be a little daunting. So you might check out the film versions. But here's the thing that's different about Rings of Power. It is not based on anything really that Tolkien actually wrote. So mm. so what I'm saying is this. So while the, if you know the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings movies, those were film adaptations of Lord of the Rings, the books. So they took the stories Tolkien wrote and they turned them into movies. That's how it's usually done. This is different. So because Tolkien is a fantasy writer who sort of created a world and then stories, he's always in his books alluding to earlier histories or the past lives of certain characters. So it'll come up in Lord of the Rings or it'll come up. He's famous for the the appendix or the appendices that he will write to his stories where maybe he offers a few more legends or myths or sort of fills out some of the backstory. So from what I understand it, maybe I should have looked this up to get the details exactly right, but ah, it doesn't matter. More or less from what I understand it <laughs> is that the makers of this show, they didn't get permission and I'm not even sure they sought it, but they didn't have permission from Tolkien's estate to turn any of the actual writings into a film. But what they got permission was to bring their own storytelling to bear on an episode of Middle Earth history that Tolkien, you know, didn't give us all the details of. So, for instance, if you're thoroughly confused, bear with me. Um, There are some characters in Lord of the Rings, famously Galadriel, the elf. Well, Galadriel's an elf. She lived for many, many, many years. She experienced many things before the events described in the Lord of the Rings. Well, in this new television show, The Rings of Power, we get to see Galadriel as a younger elf. We get to see some of the backstory. Okay, so the reason I love it is that I can appreciate the Rings of Power, I think, a little more easily because it's not as if there's source material that I'm constantly judging, like, did they change anything? Are they sticking to the source material? Now, there are some Tolkien super fans who are more familiar with all those appendices and things than I am, and they may have some legitimate concerns about some slight changes. I don't know. That is not me. (laughs) I'm not coming to it with that kind of knowledge. I'm just coming to it for the story. So the thing I was concerned about, Lisa Joe, is whether these new, you know, producers, whether they would be true to the spirit of Middle Earth and to Tolkien's 
focus on um, courage and faithfulness and and the value of like little ordinary people, you know, how the hobbits just change everything, even though they're the most insignificant characters. I mean, these are such rich values in his work, and I didn't want to see that twisted or malformed. And they don't. I just feel like in Rings of Power, they are so true to the kind of rich, like Christian theological thinking around things like courage and faithfulness and, um, you know, and about like real goodness and real evil and the difference between the two. And um, things like, you know, how characters are, are they become what they choose. So if a character chooses to do good, then they they reveal themselves as good. If they choose to do evil, then they're formed in that direction and they become evil. That's a deeply Christian idea. So I I'm, I've loved this series for many reasons, but one reason is that it is something that um, I can watch with my husband, I can watch with my teen boys, and we're all really into it. And yet at the end of it, I can say like, oh my gosh, you guys, like, that's like this in the Bible, or that's like this in our faith. And, or there was a moment um, in a recent episode where a, a character died, and he faced his death with almost, not that he wanted to die, there wasn't despair, but a sense of, okay, I'm dying, it's going to be okay, because, you know, the sun will rise in that place, and I will see those who've gone before. And he, in that sense, wasn't afraid to die. And I immediately turned to Bo. I was like, see, the good characters aren't afraid to die. Like, so beautiful. And he was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, for moments like that, um, I, I highly recommend it. Now, okay, here come the, you know, a little more re- revelatory things. Some of the episodes were a little violent for me. I don't love <laughs> the visual depictions of war. So, you know, just know that it's there. You might want to look between your fingers or close your eyes. That's what I did. Um, There were a few moments where my youngest Elsa slipped into the room and I like pulled her over and covered her eyes. (laughs) I was like, you don't need to see this. Um, But my teenage boys, like they love it and they watch other war movies and things with violence, you know, to a certain degree. And so at least for me, it was something we could share, something we could talk about, something we could process together. Um, but there is violence and there is, you know, the evil is really ugly. Um, so there is that. But there's also like such sweet characters and good music and um, visually just gorgeous. So, yeah, I don't know if you have any questions for me, Sajo, but that's, I feel like I've kind of rambled on. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I'm encouraging, you know, anyone who, who has teen, you know, teenagers or who has an interest in Tolkien, or I'll just say Christians, like, it's so rare to find something I think streaming on TV that really, um, expresses values that are so in keeping with like a Christian way of seeing the world. So highly recommend. I I am relieved, I'm going to say, to hear you say that. I think part of why I haven't written it yet is that I, uh, re- sorry, written it. <laughs> the part of why I haven't watched it yet is that I have felt nervous about will the writing live up, you know, will the writing be honored? Like, will I feel frustrated? There's always that nervousness around texts that are almost sacred. I honestly have read the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy 
like so many times I've lost count. I actually, when I was younger, it was a safe place I would go to. I could literally open any book at any passage and just start reading. And it was comfort and friendship and courage and just so many things that meant so much. So I, I keep, it's weird because I've saved it in our prime queue. I keep meaning to watch it and I keep wondering why am I not clicking play? And I think maybe psychologically I've been holding back because I was nervous. So that was actually very affirming to hear you say that, um, especially the that I don't know if we expected a secular production to honor the sacred themes in that writing. But like you, I also get skeptical. Can they do this well? Will it be cheesy if we're going to explore themes of faith, which I think is a good transition to the next series I wanted to recommend. I confess here, I really don't read any Christian fiction. I may read sometimes fiction by Christians. So I feel like our good friend Sean Smucker is a good example of that. But in the genre of Christian fiction, I tend to avoid it because I am picky and I feel like sometimes it's too obvious or in your face. And I would prefer to read what we might describe as secular fiction Yet, because I honestly do believe all of us are created in the image of Christ, we can't seem to avoid these themes of good and evil. And Louise Penny is a great example of that. She's constantly writing books She's that Christy and I believe are more than any other book I've read, Unpack the Nature of Evil, that is germane to us as humans who are sinful. And she's she's not she doesn't claim to be a believer. She's not trying to write those from a Christian point of view. I would just argue that that Christ and the fall and all of it is baked into the DNA of humanity. And so we can't help but <laughs> explore those issues, uh, what, whether we're artists or writers or homemakers. I say all of that to say there's a series I just recently finished that is Christian fiction, even though I don't know that it's claiming to be that. It clearly is. And it's by an author that most people are probably quite familiar with. His name is Charles Martin. And his probably most famous book that was turned into a movie he wrote is The Mountain Between Us, which was the one with uh, Kate Winslet was in it and Idris Elba um, about the plane crash in the mountains. Anyway, he's written many, many, many books over the years, but this was my first experience reading anything of his. And full disclaimer, he is an author at the publishing house where I work. So part of my reading it was getting caught up to speed on some of his works. And I have to tell you, I started reading it and then could not put them down. They are a wonderful series. So the series is, uh, his main character in the series, his name is Murphy Shepard. So this is the Murphy Shepard series. And there are three books in the series, The Letter Keeper, The Water Keeper, and The Record Keeper. And I was skeptical, not just because it's Christian fiction, but because one of the themes they're dealing with in these books is not something I would choose to read about, but they deal with the really hard topic of human trafficking and having worked as a legal expert in Ukraine on a counter human trafficking team, I would never choose to relax by reading books about human trafficking. It's a terrible topic that I never want to go into with a sense of like, this is entertainment, or this is, it's just not a space I would choose to put my mind at the end of a long day. But I will tell you this, Charles approaches this topic with such grace and such insight. He did a ton of research. He spent a lot of time with people who work with victims of trafficking. 
And even though I would definitely qualify this as saying he's dealing with difficult subject matter, it's not graphic. And I appreciate that, too. There's no sense of further exploitation by by going into having a reader imagine what I think we should try to protect women when we're talking about this topic. But really, the lens through which he tells the story is this great character, Murphy Shepard, who is, um, and I, this is not a spoiler either, so this character in the novels is himself a novelist, which is such an interesting twist. And he's a novelist who writes these very popular novels and makes tons of money off of it, but he writes them under a pseudonym. So nobody actually knows who the author is behind these novels. And he uses the income he makes from these novels to finance this firm he runs that helps rescue victims from trafficking. So like the premise is like author slash, I'm trying to think like Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible dude, (laughs) who's going into these extreme situations to help run rescue missions, essentially. But he's a flawed hero, which is the best kind. He has a mentor, his name is Bones, who has his own broken and sad past who is a character who's both a priest and marine and he uses the word priest as a verb he always talks about i also priest you know like on the Aww. side i priest oh, i love that it's wonder <laughs> they are such wonderful characters and ultimately it's a story of redemption about what christ does for us i mean how he comes after us and i think what this these books are incredible just fiction. They're gripping and page turning and exciting and sad and wonderful. Um, but I think what Charles's gift is, is he is able to show us Jesus, a, a version of Jesus that some of us who've grown up as believers our whole life might have become stale or tired. He reimagines for me, at least, Jesus in a, in a pretty shocking way. Like, I think sometimes Jesus is sanitized in my mind, but I think these novels reminded me, like, where there's nowhere Jesus won't go to get us. There's no situation he won't put himself into. There's no horror he won't face. There's an, And there's nothing about you or I that is off-putting to Jesus. Like, he wants to get to us. And this character, Murphy Shepard, I, I cried. I mean, his passionate pursuit of rescue is to a level that puts himself at risk constantly and his deep compassion for the women that he's coming to find is, is so great. Also, I think Louise Penny is the only other fiction writer where I underline in fiction books. I don't do that very often, but I did a lot in this one. A lot. I kept writing things like, he gets it. This is amazing. I love this. Like this constant idea of what love looks like. A love that's completely shameless. Like a love that will come and completely humiliate itself or put itself at risk or go into depraved spaces in order to rescue you. So yeah, this series is phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal. I I loved it um, and and highly recommend it. I I would give it like a PG-13 and in places R rating. So if you're thinking about something for your teenagers... I go read the descriptions and maybe what people have said on Goodreads. I think some of the descriptors about the backstory when it comes to trafficking are hard to read, but they're honest and and true as someone who spent some time in and around helping uh, victims coming out of trafficking. But I was it was compelling reading. I couldn't put it down. I, I haven't read a hero that I've really enjoyed that much in a really long time. Hmm. 
So a little side note here. I first heard about him and his books when I was living in Florida because I was in a small group with his niece. No way. <laughs> yeah. No way. He sort of like quietly and almost like, not apologetically, but like very quietly admitted this and told us like, oh yeah, he's, I, I think she was telling us because we hadn't heard of him yet. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty well known. People really love his books. And I feel like it was about that time that my mom and sister discovered his books. And it was so fun to tell him, tell them like, oh, yeah, I, okay, I don't know him. I haven't met him, but I know his niece. That's all. Well, I got to have a phone call with him and talk to him as we talk about book things with him. And it was just like my dream come true because I was like, Charles, we're just going to have to get the fangirl moment out of the way. Like, I just love this. And had I wanted to like talk to him about after the third novel, how he just has to write another one. Like, I had all these ideas for how he could go about it. I'm sure that's exactly what he needed from me. (laughs) I'm like, it can't be over. It can't. And he has tons of books, right? right? So even if this topic isn't, you know, what where someone wants to start, I think there's a lot of, yeah, he has so many novels out. Yeah, he's wonderful. Okay, so another TV show from me. I have been watching um, the new season, at least the new season as it was released here in the U.S., of The Great British Baking Show, which maybe many of our listeners have already watched, but... Um, If you're in the U.S., there is a new season available, and so I like to watch that. John and I have always been fans for years now, and now that Elsa is older and will watch TV with with us sometimes, um, I've been watching with her. And I I like it as someone who doesn't watch any other cooking or baking TV, and especially not American baking TV, because we Americans turn everything into a crazy dehumanizing contest. (laughs) And the thing I love about the Great British Baking Show is that um, there's a little bit more usually in it to like as if it's set up for to help the bakers succeed. And there's a good community feeling amongst the bakers who are competing. They don't act, they're not competitive. They clearly become best buds and they like help each other. And if someone isn't, is is about to like miss the deadline or not be ready when the timer goes off, they'll like, if others are finished, they'll gather around and try to help him finish or decorate. And so it just has this great, sweet spirit. But um, a friend shared on Facebook a, a little Um, satire piece from The New Yorker recently. And I'm just going to read a little bit because it really captures um, some truths about the Great British Baking Show and why it is superior, I say, to any of the American cooking and baking shows. So um, this is called The Average Contestant on British Baking Shows versus The Average Contestant on American (laughs) Cooking Shows. (laughs) So British. Ian is a landscape architect and retired Navy man. He spends his free time restoring 18th century clocks, learning to play the pipe organ, and embroidering floral neckerchiefs for the needy. (laughs) In the American version, Sarah is a former James Beard-nominated chef, trying to break back into the industry. Her hobbies include paying down medical debt, blaming herself for the breakdown of her marriage, and getting increasingly depressing tattoos. Oh, wow. The British, if he wins, Ian will take home a small, valueless trophy, a tasteful bouquet of flowers, and the satisfaction of a job well done. And it would be a delightful surprise for his mum, who still thinks that his sausage rolls could never compete with hers. Oh, 
On the American, if Sarah makes it to the final round, she'll win a quarter of a million dollars and won't have to let Gordon Ramsay shave her head. Winning would allow Sarah to breathe freely, the oppressive weight of failure finally lifted, at least fleetingly, from her chest. The prize money would also help her chip away at the aforementioned medical debt. Okay, it goes on in this vein, but you get the idea. The characters, well, they're not characters, they're real people on these British shows, are... They're just genuine people and living genuine lives with genuine hobbies, and they're clearly just home bakers, and it isn't this cutthroat (laughs) competition. Um, It's just very sweet. And yes, they don't even win prize money. They win like a, they win flowers and a little trophy and but was that, is that real copy? Like what you just read, is that actually written? Like, was that made <laughs> oh, up? Oh, it's a satire piece from oh, the New Yorker. okay. I was like, but wait, what? actually, I mean, I could go on. Like, actually, some of the things they mention are, some of the things are made up to be funny. But because I've seen so many seasons of The Great British Baking Show, a lot of what they're saying about the British contestants are real. Like, like they mention, like, Ian is known for um, keeping a carpenter's pencil you know jauntily perched behind his ear like that is the kind of that is actually from the show but no it's just totally made up like emphasizing this this difference in let's say culture and tone between what you typically see on american tv where do you watch it so um i think it's available in a different place a few different places here in the u.s we started watching it on pbs and maybe new episodes still go there but you can watch all the back seasons i think on netflix okay i I think the back seasons are on netflix um it's hard to remember but yeah i think that's where they are okay um yeah yeah but the new ones we were always watching on on public television that's a good reminder because i haven't thought of that show in a while but that is kind of like comfort tv right there comfort tv exactly the only problem my only criticism is that if you're going to watch the great british baking show that you have to bake something first or go to the grocery store and buy something sweet because it's going to make you really want cake it's true or like a good bread or croissant or pie yes a hundred i bake any cooking show does that to me and I often like if I happen to it's weird you say this because if I have made myself some kind of really great lunch or something and I want something to watch then I'm like huh, I should watch a cooking show since I actually have good food in front of me today now's the time I can do it <laughs> actually that's a perfect transition because my third book that I wanted to recommend have you heard of this one it's called crying in H Mart oh sure yeah yeah one of the most beautiful memoirs I have ever read. It's by Michelle Zauner. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, And she's actually from a rock band, which is really interesting, too. She's from an indie rock group called Japanese Breakfast. And uh, she actually, right when she was starting to break out, when their band was starting to take off, she dropped out of the music scene for a year or so because she went home to take care of her mom who had received a cancer diagnosis. And this book is the story of the year she spent with her mom when her mom was dying. And if it sounds depressing, it is in parts, but it is also so beautiful because she frames the story around all the food that her mom used to make for her as a child. And she is half, Michelle is half Korean. And she talks about going to H Mart, which is this grocery store that carries all kinds of different 
international type foods. And as someone who has, I've been, maybe I've been to an H Mart once or twice, but as someone who really has no frame of reference for any of the meals or food she describes in this book, it was still such compelling reading. It's exquisite. And she has a very complicated relationship with her mom that she's really honest about. But when she describes the memories that come with food, you just love it so much. And what's really beautiful is she talks about how in this sort of dysfunctional, hard relationship she had with her mom, the one place her mom really loved her and other people was through food. I'm going to read this little paragraph that's really beautiful. She says about her mom, I remember these things clearly because that was how my mother loved you, not through white lies and constant verbal affirmation, but in subtle observations of what brought you joy, pocketed away to make you feel comforted and cared for without even realizing it. She remembered if you liked your stews with extra broth, if you were sensitive to spice, if you hated tomatoes, if you didn't eat seafood, or if you had a large appetite. She remembered which bench and side dish you emptied first, so the next time you were over, it'd be set with a heaping double portion served alongside the various other preferences that made you, you. And it is just the most beautiful story of a daughter coming to see her mom through fresh eyes. And it's called Crying in H Mart because she talks about every time she goes to that store now, she's surrounded by all these sense memories of her mother and how she burst into tears when she was there. And there are all these other Asian families shopping with their moms or grandmas and how she doesn't have that connection to her mom anymore. And it's, it's just exquisite. And it's also fun to go Google her and just like watch her interviews with Jimmy Fallon or others because it's sort of not the person you expect to write this exquisitely lyrical memoir, but maybe it makes sense because she's a musician and she writes great lyrics and she's now gone on to be quite a famous band that they're in. And it's just beautiful and unexpected. I think its cover, too, is one of my favorites. It's a bright red cover, then with these two sets of chopsticks on either side and long noodles hanging between the two. Um, and it's a place to get lost in different kinds of foods, and yet how the language of grief is so universal. And it helps us, those of us who have complicated relationships with our parents, let's face it, that's all of us at some stage or another, untangle those and then maybe look at our own parental relationships and say, you're right, what was the thing I had in common with that parent who was difficult? Because I think we do all have a kernel of something and hers was Korean food. It's just such the writing, the food, all of it, just chef's kiss. <laughs> I have heard such good things about that book. So I just, I definitely need to make time to read it. Everyone I've yeah, I feel like everyone has read it and has raved about it, but I haven't yet. So I still have that to look forward to. Um, yeah, that was a good fit with the Great British Baking Show. Okay, I don't know how to transition to my last one because it's just, <laughs> maybe it's, if that memoir is a little bit quirky, then this is a quirky TV show. I don't know. Um, I have been re-watching one of my favorite TV shows. It's a British comedy, and I've been re-watching it with my 16-year-old son. You know, he's, I think, old enough now to appreciate that more subtle comedy. He likes British culture, and the TV show is called The Detectorists. And oh, the two main characters... Oh, Lisa Joe, I'm googling it I, it's right quirky. now. Okay, good. It's quirky, so you know I can never predict like who will love it and who won't. Um, but those who love it deeply, deeply love it. So the two <laughs> main characters are these really kind of 
somewhat sad, <laughs> slightly <laughs> foolish, pathetic, even characters who spend a lot of time. Their hobby is going out into the British countryside, the English countryside, and using metal detectors to find buried treasure and archaeological treasure and so on. But the thing about this show is that these characters who, on the one hand, are often objects of ridicule, they turn out to be just the the heroes, the ones who actually kind of show up the rest of the world as like, we're the foolish ones. Like they clearly have their priorities right. And they have a kind of wisdom and heart that the rest of the world around them is missing. And so I will, you know, just caution you, this is British comedy. It can be, um, you know, language warning. Sometimes the jokes are a bit, what's the word, like, body, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, that, you know, there's been a few moments with my teenage son where I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I would have fast-forwarded that if I'd realized. But it's also, you know, in a British accent. And sometimes I think he maybe doesn't even understand everything they're saying. I don't know, because it's a different, uh, you know, different slang. Um, so, you know, there is that. Take care. But um, there are three seasons, and it's worth watching all three because there is kind of a whole story arc through through the three seasons and um it's just so delightful and it has such heart and the humor is often just gentle and there's such quirky characters and these two guys are a part of a metal detective club <laughs> and they have club meetings every week <laughs> with their little goofy gang of metal detectorists and um, kind of an on ongoing joke and this will just give you a, a sense of the kind of comedy that this is like an ongoing joke is that everyone who sees them doing this or approaches them says oh are you a metal detector and their th their their thing is that the tool they use is a metal detector <laughs> they themselves are not metal detectors so yes. they're always saying no, detectorist, detectorist. Um, so just for the characters and just the sweetness of it, I cannot recommend it enough. So there's one like favorite little scene in the third season that I just finished watching where one of the main guys, I think his name's Andy. Um, and, and for anyone who's watched British comedy, if you've seen the original BBC Office, then oh, the, yes. he's in that. So he, um, so he's a pretty well-known um, British actor, a great actor. So he's just he's a down on his luck guy. Um, although I will tell you, the series does not leave him there. It has such a happy ending. Aww. But he's a down on his luck guy. He's lost another job. He and his wife and their baby have to live with his mother-in-law. Like things are not <laughs> oh. going well. And he is back trying to earn money for a flat for them by working with a road crew to spray weed killer on the weeds on the side of the highway. Um, so two things happen while he is doing this job that is clearly like so wrong for him. <laughs> Number one, he is in charge, he's put in charge of putting the weed killer, the poison into their sprayers. So it's like half water and half weed killer. So his boss hands him the weed killer and is like, be careful, wear your mask. Don't breathe it. Don't touch it. Here you go. Put it in. And so he gets this horrified look on his face, like, oh my gosh, I can't breathe it. I can't touch it. And then you see him get an idea to just not put the weed killer in, but pretend like he has. So then what? he and his team spend the rest of the day just spraying water on all the weeds. <laughs> oh 
And he is clearly so pleased with himself that he is not like poisoning the environment that occasionally he will slip down his mask. And when no one is looking, he will squirt the sprayer right into his mouth just to get a little drink of water. (laughs) And then he'll make a little smirk and then he'll keep going. (laughs) So that is the kind of like watering the weeds. Yeah, (laughs) watering the weeds. So that's the kind of underdog character we have here who, like, even in, like, these lowest moments, he's finding little ways to, like, do the right thing or um, kind of show up the foolishness of our world. And then the, the other moment happens when he's spraying the weeds and he sees a little tiny hedgehog in the middle of the road and a car is racing toward it. So he runs out and he stops the car and he gets the hedgehog and he carries it off and he goes to his boss holding this little round hedgehog and he says, is it okay? Um, can you let me go, you know, take, find a spot for him? Can I go put him in the woods? And the boss <laughs> looks at this hedgehog and says, what is that? I, hedgehogs are flat. And Andy just looks at him and says, no, squash dead hedgehogs are flat. (laughs) Living hedgehogs are spherical. (laughs) And the boss just looks at it like, no. Oh, Oh, I think the boss even called it a porcupine. He's like, that's a porcupine. Hedgehogs are flat. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) And poor little Andy, like, holding his hedgehog. It's like... So on the one hand, it's like these detectorists, they're they're just the foolish, lowest of the low everyman characters but they are the ones that you love and you root for and you want things to go right and most of all you really really want them to find buried treasure with their metal detectors (laughs) i have never heard of the show i'm so excited i just literally googled and saved it while you were speaking I hope that there's listeners that have had that experience today. Like, I hope there's at least one thing we mentioned that felt like your cup of tea and you are going to check it out this week. And then you're going to let us know what you thought of it, because this is a great snuggle up with your hot chocolate smorgasbord here. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, Lisa Jo, maybe we'll do these every so often. Maybe next time I'll do books and you'll do movies, but we'll definitely do it again. It has been fun. I love it. 